Let's pray. Lord, I want to borrow those words from John 6 and say, sir, give us this bread always. Lord, we are hungry people, spiritually speaking, and you're the only thing that can satisfy. So would you open your word to us today and feed us? And as the preacher, I ask that you would help me be clear and true to your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I had an unusual experience last week. I'm renovating the master bathroom in my house, and I've been doing this since January. That's another issue. Um, But, you know, Murphy's Law says that if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. And usually we expect things to not line up just right, or you have just one too few of something. I had the complete opposite beyond coincidental level. And it started when I laid the first tile by the bathroom, by the shower door, and then worked around over by the toilet. And when I got to the far wall in the corner, not only did I not have to shorten the tile, I didn't have to cut it on either side. It was a perfect fit. That meant the whole 12-foot row was going to be exactly the right ones. And I was like, huh. You know, and you say things like, wow, that was lucky at first. And then these things keep happening over and over again. At one point, I went into the the closet part, and the last scoop of mortar was exactly, it emptied the bucket, and I was like, huh, that's weird. This kept happening, and at one point, I'm I'm on my knees, I'm toward the end, I'm almost out, I need one full tile, and I don't want to get up again, and I go, oh, wait. The day before, I had set one tile just outside the door, and I thought, oh, that's a stupid place, I'm going to break that tile, but I was too tired to mess with it, I left it there, and I went, oh, there it is, plunk. I ran into somebody from our church at Home Depot, and he told me about this tool they have, this little thing that helps you level the tiles. I'd never used them before. It made the job so much faster and better. And then the next day, I had to finish that last piece that I had to jump out of because you can't tile yourself into the corner. And I didn't want to put wet water back in the wet side, cleaned it, and I went, you know, there's a scrap over there. I'll bet you that's 14 and a half inches. No joke. I just started laughing. I was like, Lord, this is this is like crazy. And I said, why can't it always be like this? And you know what he said? I mean, I sense this in my soul. You know, when the Lord speaks to you, it's not like audibly usually, but I was like, Lord, why can't it always be like this? And he said, because that's not where you grow. When it's easy, that's not where you grow. Life is about learning to depend on God. And when it's not going well, my props become exposed. It shows me the things I look to to find comfort or satisfaction other than God. You know that acronym, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, halt? When you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, your sin comes out better. It's more obvious. It bubbles up to the surface. It's when the tile doesn't fit that the choice words start coming out, and you think, why is my mouth so, so foul? Where is, the, where is this coming from? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I? And, you know, when you're tired, what do I turn to for rest? These kind of things start coming out when you're being tested by that. And it asks the question, what do I need to be content? What do I need to be content? I look ahead to Philippians, and I see the Apostle Paul writing from prison, and he says, I have learned to be content in all situations, whether brought low or raised up. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Probably one of the most misquoted verses of the scriptures. People think, Christ will give me the strength to accomplish my agenda. And what Paul is saying is, no, 
I only need Christ. I'm content in him, and all that other stuff fades away because I am being nourished by Christ. That's very different than God is my helper on the side, my assistant helping me tile a bathroom. It's very different. I want to learn what Paul learned. And he says, I have learned. In other words, it took a process. And I want you to know that the wilderness is incredibly helpful for learning that process, learning to rely on God. The wilderness is both a literal wilderness. You can go out into the desert, out into the woods, and be alone with God and tear away all the comforts of normal life, and you start to really focus on him. Or it can be figurative wilderness where something is stripped away from what you're used to, and it exposes those props. So the wilderness is helpful. It can be a self-imposed wilderness, or it can be a God-imposed one. For instance, I took our staff on a two-day retreat this week. We went down to Camp Kalakwa. Now, we stayed in a comfortable hotel down there, but we had ample time to go walk down the path in the woods, to sit by the spring, to write in our journal, to read, to listen, and put away the busyness of week-by-week ministry to have a wilderness experience, to ask, Lord, what's going on in my heart? You know, what, what do I need? Where, where am I looking for contentment in places other than you? The wilderness can be something you choose. It can be a combination, like in the famous St. Anthony. In the year, he was born in 250 A.D. He's one of the, the first desert fathers, as they call them. He was, an, he was an introverted man growing up, and by the age of 18, decides that he wants even more God's sufficiency in place of self-sufficiency. And he, goes, he's, he, was, he was raised in, in Egypt, and he goes into the wilderness where Israel went, And he spends 20 years out there learning to trust God, doing battle with Satan, doing battle with his own desires for self-sufficiency. And he was, at the end of 20 years, he was so shaped by his time in the wilderness that when he came back near people, they were coming to him in in large numbers to ask for wisdom, for prayer, because they recognized this is a whole man in mind and body and spirit. He is fully dependent on God, and he looked different. He acted different. He had a peace that was that peace that surpasses understanding, and it it was from his time in the wilderness. The bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, wrote a book, and then all the monks in the the early centuries started to follow what they learned from St. Anthony. That is a both God and self-imposed wilderness. He was in a church service and heard the passage of, sell everything, give to the poor, and follow me, and he felt like the Lord said, that is actually personally for you. And Anthony did that. He gave up the wealth of his family and went out into the wilderness as a poor man to learn to rely entirely on God. And God met him there. Now, ancient Israel in Exodus 15, 16, 17 are in a God-imposed wilderness. He leads them out into the wilderness, as he does elsewhere. I mean, the Spirit drove Jesus right from his baptism out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, to be tested by Satan. And Jesus was out there without food. Here, back in Exodus, God leads the Israelites out into the wilderness also to test them, also to reveal some things about their heart. Once the Egyptians and Pharaoh are no longer the threat, now the issue is sin. And how long do you think it takes going into the wilderness before that stuff starts to bubble up to the surface? Three days, literally. If you go back to chapter 15 and verse 22, it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. 
They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. That's the Hebrew word for bitter. And the people grumbled. Very important word. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw the log into the water and the water became sweet. Now the word grumbled matters there because we do need water. And they'd run out of water after three days and it doesn't take long to die from, from thirst. So that God knows they need water. But you would think we, of course we on this side of the cross with the Holy Spirit tend to have a certain snobbery. We look back and go, those fools, they just saw God part the Red Sea, big piles of water so they could walk through, and then he floods the Egyptian army. They should say, God, you can do anything. We're thirsty, but we know you're going to provide for us, so just bring the water. We worship you, right? That's me, of course, assuming somehow I wouldn't do the exact thing that they did, and I would, and you would. We would grumble, and they grumble, and they do this over and over again, actually, quite a bit. But what we learn is that God is gracious with grumblers. What's his response? Moses, there's this log, throw it into the, into the water and it will become sweet. And then they go on from there. It says, um, I'm still in chapter, at the end of chapter 15. It says, um, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. Very interesting. The Lord is testing them to see if they will rely on him. And he's showing them, look, I can provide this water by making it drinkable. I can lead you to a spring in the desert that has 12 springs, for, one for each of your tribes and 70 palm trees. And they spend two and a half months there. But guess how long it takes to run out of their food supplies? About two and a half months, it turns out. And we get to chapter 16. It says, when they set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel, they came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elim and Sinai. Remember, they're on the way to Mount Sinai. There's, if you were here for the teaching night, there's kind of three parts to Exodus. There's getting out of Egypt, then there's coming to Sinai and getting the law, and then there's the building of the tabernacle. So they're going from the Red Sea toward Sinai, and they're en route, and it says, um, they're right between there, they're on the 15th day of the second month. So somewhere about two and a half months from when they departed the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. There's that word again. Now, grumble, I looked it up in the app, 30 times in the entire ESV. Eight of them are in chapter 16. One of them is in, Luke, in John chapter 6, which is a direct allusion to this story, and most of them are contained in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So they complain the first time, God makes the water fine then leads them to a spring, graciously provides for these grumblers. Now they're out of food, haven't learned yet, so now they complain about food. But they don't just complain, they, they question God's motives. Look, listen to what it says in verse 2 of our chapter. It says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. I mean, they're like wishing that angel of death had wiped them out. They're regretting the Passover blood, maybe. I wish we had just died in Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
Oh my goodness. That's what they're accusing God of. That is the duck for the lightning bolt moment. And yet, God is gracious with grumblers. His patience exceeds what mine certainly would have been. I read it and I think, I'm sitting in judgment over Israel right now as I read it, and God is more gracious than that. God is gracious with grumblers. And then it says in verse four, it says, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether, whether they will walk in my law or not. Okay, super important. God is testing them. That's why he let them get to day three on the water. That's why he let them get to month three on the food. He's testing them, not to set them up for failure, not to give them a grade, but to reveal to their own hearts how much they have to grow. God still does that today. He tests us with things so that we can grow. Or as the Apostle Paul says, I have learned to be content. So we can learn because he loves us He tests us, he challenges us, he provides opportunities for us to grow. Now, Jesus, when he was tested in the wilderness for 40 days, I mean, you know the story from Luke chapter four, Satan's tempting him, if you're the son of God, say to this stone, become bread. What does Jesus say? He quotes Deuteronomy and says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he defeats him all three of the temptations. Jesus perfectly handles the wilderness and shows that he is the perfect one who can stand in our place and take the wrath of God in our place and then give us his righteousness. But back here, we're learning something about testing. Now, it's interesting. So he, he, he tells them how this is going to work. You're going to get this, this, this bread, this what they'll later call manna. But in um, verses 9 and 10, he says to Moses and Aaron, have the people come out to me, and I'm going to address them. Frightening moment a pillar of cloud, right? The Lord's glory in a cloud comes. It says in verse 10, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, or that's verse 10, verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The purpose is not their stomachs and satiating hunger. It's so that they would know God that they would know him as a provider, that that mistrust that humans have about God, we would find that he actually is good and he loves us and his ways are better for us. In fact, we were designed to live on him and nothing else. He's teaching that. So he doesn't strike them down right here. Again, he's gracious. And so it says, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp and in the morning, dew lay on the, around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. I like that in the ESV it says thing, right? We're not quite sure what this is. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? That's actually the, in, in Hebrew, it sounds like manna. They called it, what is it? That's what it became known as. What, isn't there a candy bar called whatchamacallit, right? They're like, what is it? Let's have some what is it. That becomes the name for this stuff, and they, they live on this. It's so interesting. The Lord is providing this, and what he wants them to learn is I'm not going to pile this stuff up in a storehouse that you can just help yourself. I'm going to feed you from my hand daily. Every day you'll get it, and every day you'll eat it, and the next day you'll get more. Don't keep any of it over until the morning. But what do they do? 
Rather than burn the leftovers, they leave it there, and it stinks, and it gets filled with worms right away, and Moses is angry with them. I mean, this is like training a toddler. I told you not to do that. If you do that, this happens. And they don't learn it, and they don't learn it, and they don't learn it. And he says, on the Sabbath, we don't do work on the Sabbath, so I want you to boil some of the meat and bake some of the manna so it doesn't turn into stinky worms, and the next day, there will be none out there. So what do they do? A bunch of them go out to collect on the Sabbath and learn the hard way. Oh, he was serious. When God says something, it actually happens. So Moses is trying to train them, and God is trying to train them, but they don't listen well. And so we find that passage from Psalm 95 where there is a warning to us, and it's also quoted in in 1 Corinthians. Psalm 95 says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Massa means testing, and Meribah means quarreling, the day of testing and quarreling. When your fathers put me to the test, see, he was testing them to train them to, to rely on him to feed from his hand daily, but they were testing his patience. And it says in Psalm 90, 95, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. But this gracious God, it tells us in our passage, for 40 years, it says in verse 35, the last one, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And what God did is he said, we're going to stay out here until you learn this lesson. And it took 40 years, and that whole generation passed away, and then the next generation was not much better, to be honest. I mean, really, when you read through the conquest of the land, what we see is broken, sinful people and a gracious God who keeps reaching out and inviting them to trust him. And that's no different today. When we get to chapter 17, Again, they run out of food, or they run out of water, and, and then they complain, and once again they say, you've brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness. This actually happens in Exodus chapter 17. Again, this keeps happening. And then he says to Moses, I'm going to go stand on a rock, and you strike it with the staff, and then I'll bring water from the rock. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that Christ is that rock. This is a foreshadowing of the cross. This problem of grumbling and not trusting God is going to require something way bigger than just water and manna and quail. It's going to require Christ going and being struck for us. He's going to bear our iniquities, our sin. He's going to take that on him on the cross. And the the parallel, the, the connection here is so clear in John 6 and 7. In John 6, Jesus has huge crowds of people go out onto the, up into the wilderness north of the Sea of Galilee. They're on the hillside. For three days, they're with him. And the disciples say, send them into the towns to buy food. They're going to faint on the way they haven't eaten. And what does he do? From a couple of loaves and fishes, you know, bread and meat, he multiplies and feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. And they don't miss it this time. They realize the connection, and, they, and so they say, we, we want you to do a sign for us. This is after he's done a sign for them. They want to make him king because they realize he's just done a miracle, and they make the connection. And they say, well, Moses gave them manna in the wilderness. Do a sign for us. And he says, it wasn't Moses. It was my father, and he gives the true bread from heaven. Now, I like what they say in response. They say, give us this bread always, and then he says, I'm that bread. I, Jesus, am the bread from heaven. I'm the food that you need. 
And in chapter 7 of John's gospel, they're at the Feast of the Booths, which is the tabernacles. They're remembering what it was like to live in these tents in the desert. And there's a big water ceremony that's part of that where they pour water and they remember the water coming out of the rock. On the last day, Jesus stands up and raises his voice and he says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and I will give you living water. He has fulfilled this exactly. The bread and the water in the wilderness, Jesus is that. He is what we need. Grumblers must be transformed into those that depend on God. If you fast forward to the book of Acts in chapter two, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, it says that they met and broke bread daily in their homes and with glad and sincere hearts, they received their provision daily. And it says God added to their number daily those that were being saved. Once the people caught on to this, that God is good and trustworthy and provides, and they started to live for him and with him and enjoy him, other people started coming in large numbers and said, we wanna be part of that too. And the church kept growing. Let me read you something from C.S. Lewis that is really interesting. You know, he has such good analogies. He says, a car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why It is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. Now, it's one thing when I say, God, would you help me put my tile on my floor and accomplish my agenda? It's another thing to realize God has an agenda for my life. God wants to teach you and me to trust him to enjoy him, to serve him. And those desert times that he brings into your life, those wilderness times are about revealing things that you trust that aren't him, things that you enjoy that are not from him, things that you serve that are not his purposes because he is trying to form you and shape you. This is good news for us. God's grace is meant to turn grumblers into friends. So today we're going to have communion as we always do. Obviously, the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament. And I want to give you the image of an exchange. I want to invite you, when you hold out your hands to receive his body and blood, that you would put in your hands, in your mind's eye, anything that is a, a, a prop in this life, anything that you lean on to find satisfaction other than Jesus, and give it to him. You know, sex, money, power, Whatever it is, materialism, I have to have this thing, I'm caught up in this relationship, I want you to say, God, I'm going to give this to you, and I want you in, in place of it. I want to be content in you, and ask him to feed you the true manna. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm grateful that you are so gracious with us, and I dangerously sit in judgment over the Israelites, but I am an Israelite. I am one of them, at least in heart. I'm a grumbler, and I know that you have more for me and for each one of us, and I pray that you would show us what that is. Give us the courage to even invite the wilderness times. Lord, teach us to find our contentment and satisfaction in you. You are good, and you love us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.